1: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. My name is Sharonik Boshu. I am a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University, and I co-host another podcast called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the Academy in very short episodes. Today, we are talking about a brilliant new book titled Geographies of Anti-Colonialism, Political Networks Across and Beyond South India, circa 1900 to 1930 by Andrew Davis, published by Wiley Blackwell in 2019. Andy Davis is a geographer based in Liverpool who works at the intersection of historical, political and cultural geographies. His work explores how anti-colonial ideas helped to create new spaces for political activity and expression. Alongside his research activity, Andy regularly, when allowed, conducts public walks exploring Liverpool's colonial past particularly working with the Liverpool-based creative arts charity, Writing on the Wall. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming to New Books Network and talking to us about your book.
0: Uh, thanks, Sharanak, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and uh, to have the time to talk about things.
1: Absolutely. So, jumping right ahead, um, my first question to you is a very general one. Could you give us a sense of the inception of this book, and particularly as uh, an end point or a culmination of your Intellectual trajectories.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess there's kind of, there's two two things which overlap to some extent, which are kind of biographical, um, as well as kind of the more academic trajectory of those things. So um, I guess personally, um, after I finished my undergraduate studies, um, I kind of had this, had the a kind of quite a naive sensibility of the world at that time where I was, I, I realized that kind of colonialism had created kind of global inequalities and those things hadn't really uh, been alleviated in any way, shape or form. And so one of uh, one of the things I kind have of naively did was I took myself off to um, teach non-formal education in an informal settlement in uh, Bangalore in South India. And by happenstance, um, the, informal settlement that I worked in was a Tamil speaking settlement, where it was people who were migrating from um, the kind of northwest of Tamil Nadu state um, to Bangalore, which was, this is, you know, 2003. Um, So it's kind of right at the height of the tech boom in Bangalore at the time. So huge kind of influxes of people into that city at that time. Um, And so I kind of swiftly realized that there were continuing kind of inequalities that were created by um, kind of Western development practices, um, which really became really clear to me. And that that kind of inspired me to come back to the academy uh, to some extent. But it, it, that kind of experience, while it was kind of quite disheartening in many ways, um, was also um, my kind of introduction to, to the Tamil world. Um, and I kind of shelved that for for my immediate kind of PhD work, which ended up studying um, Tibetan anti-colonialism. Um, but then as, um, and that was kind of very contemporary um, work, looking at kind of um, the resistance to Chinese colonialism of Tibet in um, in and around the kind of Beijing Olympics, but also the, th- the things that kind of Tibet support groups were doing to kind of create political activity to resist the, um, and creating transnational political activity to resist the kind of Chinese colonization of Tibet. Um, so intellectually, I, I started kind of exploring these ideas of what what anti-colonialism does as a political practice at that point. And then um, after I finished my PhD, I ended up um, in a fairly kind of typical postdoctoral situation of kind of some quite short contracts. I was mainly focused on kind of teaching contracts that were running a very short amount of time. And so I couldn't do or I couldn't continue the ethnographic type of research that I had been doing, and I ended up studying more kind of um, more archival research because you could kind of do a swift um, trip to an archive and collect enough data in a couple of days that you could work with to kind of start developing some of those uh, some of those ideas. So I gradually ended up moving back towards kind of uh, towards thinking about the independence struggle. Um, in South Asia more broadly and ended up writing about um, the Royal Indian Navy mutiny in 1946. Um, But then the real kind of inception of this project was thanks to a British um, Association of South Asian Studies and a European uh, Centre for um, Field Studies grant that gave me the chance to um, spend three months in Pondicherry in south india um so uh, the tamil speaking um formerly french enclave of south india um to look at the ways in which anti-colonialists who uh, the way i kind of try and explain it to to non-academic kind of colleagues is if you cause too much trouble in british india as part of the freedom struggle you could go away and hide in french india and carry on your political activity Um, and so I'd kind of learned about that, um, in passing almost, and it started developing that. And this Bassas, um, ECAF grant gave me the chance to be based at, um, the Ecole Francaise d'Extreme Orient in, um, Pondicherry for, for a period of time and really open my eyes to what a fascinating story, Uh, this the group of people I discuss in the book kind of tell and, um, it really became swiftly, swiftly clear that this was something that I wanted to write a book about at that point. It wasn't something that I could kind of cover just simply in a series of papers. It, well, it, needed, it was something that needed a more detailed treatment um, that um, you needed to spend some time thinking about. And so that was back in 2013. And so then the next four or five years was really spent digging through a variety of archives until the book was uh, finished in 2018 and published in
1: 2019. Right. Um, you begin the book with an old you know, foundational and field-defining debate about which prefix to add to colonialism so as to make the best kind of rhetorical and political sense. So taking from the title of the chapter, my question is, why does the term anti-colonialism or anti-colonialism still matter?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And and I think one of the things I was really keen not to do in the book, to some extent, um, was I didn't really want to go back to a lot of those debates about you know should there be a hyphen between post and colonialism um, and and those kind of things because um, those things feel incredibly well rehearsed across academia now, and um, I, I I didn't really. The value of those debates, I, I didn't really feel that I wanted to contribute to those, but I, I realised as I was thinking about the book, um, and especially it's kind of the way that the book sits in the current conjuncture about the debates that we're having about kind of colonialism and the, the ongoing legacies and impacts of colonialism in society as a whole, whether that's kind of um, globally or in kind of the UK or within geography as the discipline that kind of I'm, I'm working within, where I guess um, the, there's there's two angles to this. In the, On the one hand, I'm really sympathetic towards um, the kind of decolonial critique of post-colonialism, and And the sense that um, we we need to take the decolonial imperative um really seriously and to kind of think about what the what the practical necessities for decolonization actually are, and whether that's kind of decolonization of institutions or decolonization of the mind or, or however we want to think about that, and realizing that that is never something that's going to be um a finished struggle, but is always going to be ongoing um, and thinking about the, the kind of the act of decolonization as an ongoing process. And um, so th- on that hand, I was kind of, um, I'm really, I was really excited when these kind of debates about decolonization became much more visible across the, the academy um, and, m- and moved um, these debates kind of center stage within a lot of kind of academic production um but i guess the the thing that i was really wary of from an early stage and part of the reason why i wanted to write this chapter was particularly within the uk and within uk higher education um at the moment there's there's the kind of two strands to kind of decolonisation um and one is the kind of original radical Attempts at decolonization, which um, are kind of, you know, rooted in Fanon and um, his writings, but also continue through to settler colonial discussions of things, um, which are really live debates at the moment and require a really radical reassessment of society as a whole. But it swiftly became kind of clear that there's also the, the way that that's become institutionalized particularly within university contexts um, and particularly as part of the culture wars that are happening right at the moment, is there's that sense of, oh, yeah, we can decolonize by, you know, all universities now have a decolonization programme and that decolonization programme doesn't actually involve a radical reassessment of teaching delivery. It doesn't actually involve anything other than a kind of lip service to changing reading lists or things like that where we actually need something much more fundamental than that so i guess what i wanted to do is to kind of say while i'm incredibly sympathetic to those de- to that radical form of decolonization we need to keep in mind that that radical form of decolonization is rooted in an anti-colonial impulse and so there's always a level of antagonism that is required to these things um and it, it can't just be something that happens because everyone's going to be nice to each other at that point. There's there's going to be there there needs to be some impulse within that. Um, and so I was really interested in yeah what that sense of given that particularly within kind of academic geography, um, but also in academia more general. That I think that we've had that debate about well should we think post-colonially or should we think decolonially, and the anti-colonial has kind of disappeared or is seen as something that is a historical moment or is a historical product um and so the the chapter as 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 a whole i suppose is a, a sent, is a, an attempt to kind of say okay what what would happen if we put the anti-colonial as our central um political move within these things um and that's it's it's something that I think is is a really difficult challenge to some extent as well because the 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 negative of that approach is that it tends to and I think the chapter um could be read as an attempt to kind of create a third term or to parcel off these three things um, as separate terms yet again. So it's kind of oh well, um, I think one of the things I, I'm I. I'm keen to stress in the chapter as a whole is this sense that you know, I'm not saying that the anti-colonial is somehow better than the decolonial approach or the post-colonial approach, but I'm saying it's it, if we change that emphasis slightly. Well, what does um, thinking anti-colonially do? And I think, from my perspective, it, it does reinforce that sense of um, of the necessity for antagonism and the the necessity for agency in changing the situation within that um so yeah so that's probably a very long long long-winded answer um but that was the the kind of intent within that chapter as a whole to try and just turn up the volume i suppose um on what anti-colonialism still offers us even though theoretically um we live in an age where decolonization has occurred in the majority of places but you know that's that's a very debatable claim at the same time as well right
1: yeah. No, I mean, you know, I uh, I wrote a chapter on uh, the end of the 19th century. Um, and this, the thing that you're saying that this anti colonialism being something which is kind of ossified in history and something that cannot, or thought to be something that cannot enliven our praxis right now, is definitely something that I have encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your, in your second chapter uh, you focused on anti colonial approach to geography so give, could you you know give us your thoughts on that what would be i know this is um i don't know if this is a good question to ask but what would be a primer on anti colonial geography so to speak. Oh, wow.
0: yeah wow! yeah that's a, that's, a, that's a good question i mean um so i think there's there's been um to the i'll I'll kind of answer the first bit first I suppose in that um I guess we're all we're, we're all guilty of or to some extent we're guilty of thinking that the nation state was um the be all and end all uh, of nationalist liberation struggles in um, towards um, decolonization um and there's a huge number of people who are kind of working against that I'm thinking of people like um federico ferretti who's based in dublin uh, um, who does a, a huge amount of work on kind of anti-colonialist geographies and and um intellectual um people who sometimes identified as geographers so people like um elise Le, elise reclue um but also kind of um the ways in which there were a number of um movements taking place um within anti-colonial struggles. And I'm thinking here of um, work by the likes of Ali Raza um, and his work on kind of um, communist internationalism within the Indian freedom struggle. Um, but also uh, people like Maya Ramnath, who've looked at kind of anarchist trajectories within um, global anti-colonialisms and go- and how that kind of filters into things like the Gada movement. Um, And so I guess what I'm trying to do within, within this chapter is on the one hand to say, uh, well, look, we need to have a more diverse and a more plural understanding of what people were arguing for in terms of decolonization, right? It wasn't just people wanted a free independent nation state that would fit neatly into the kind of um, cold war decolonial scenario. And Um, and part of that, I think, is it, it's just easy easy for us to forget, you know, 70, 80 years later, how diverse things were and how much of a sense of possibility there was in um, a lot of the anti-colonial movements and a lot of the anti-colonial struggles um, at the time. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm kind of always at pains when I'm teaching these days is to kind of encourage students to think about, you know, there are there are alternatives and people were really interested in alternatives to nation state based polities, um, as the eventual end goal of, um, decolonization. And that kind of, I think that, that kind of sense of possibility is really important again, for the current conjuncture, um, in terms of encouraging kind of students, but also encouraging people to think that we don't have to kind of settle for what we have right now so th- again it's that sense of yeah, using anti-colonialism in the past to think about how people mobilized in the past to to defeat what was a world-spanning empire at that point and it would be difficult to imagine kind of you know th- defeating the world system for a lot of the, um, the people I'm talking about within the book but that didn't stop them trying to nonetheless and so th- there's kind of that that's the overall way of thinking for the chapter um and what a, what i think a geographical sense of anti-colonialism does but that sets up the ways in which um for the kind of more um the more detailed um kind of empiricals not not necessarily the r- the right word but for for the uh, kind of archival chapters that follow um What I'm trying to do is to say, well, look, you've got this one relatively small Indian city called Pondicherry, which acted as a very particular place um, that allowed people to think in different ways because of its particular kind of geopolitical, but also cultural setting. Um, And just look at the ways in which the four individuals who form the focus of the later chapters each of them creates a really distinct geography to um, to the world, and they each kind of create a new space for them uh, for um, for those things. And that that sense by which new spatialities are created as a result of kind of anti-colonialism, some of which are nationalist, and some of which are about kind of you know the economic development towards an independent nation state, but they really clearly exceed that limit as well. Um, and so I'm really interested in trying to say, well, yeah, even if you're not necessarily interested in a, as a reader in anti-colonialism and all of the debates about coloniality, you must recognise that that kind of the agency and the ability of this small group of people to really radically reshape things um, allows us to think about... Um, how anti-colonialism is a generative force um, and is not just a kind of negation of colonial rule. It's something that creates new spatial forms But um, for geographers, but also for historians. That kind of diversity that's created is a really important, um, important thing as well to show that there was much less fixity two things in the early 20th century, because, you know, again, we tend to look back and think, oh yeah, this person would, uh, because they later became defined as a communist or an anarchist or um, someone who's associated with um, the RSS or wherever you end up kind of going, actually it's it's not as clear cut as that. And these kind of the overlaps between left and right politics are actually much harder to disentangle uh, within that as well.
1: So in the next chapter, you take your understanding of anti-colonial geographies to a discussion of South India as a region in the history of anti-colonial struggle. But you combine it with also a discussion of the careers of, you know, violence and non-violence. And it's a really methodologically complex chapter, I felt. So um, could you, uh, you know, elaborate your thoughts on, you know, how this chapter is working? What does it do?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I, I, I... yeah, it, it is a complex chapter, I think. Um, and I, I felt that as I was writing it. And it was kind of, it was a, an interesting challenge to write because I, so the book, um, I guess to take a, a slight step back, the book is written in um, the book series run by the Royal Geographical Society in the UK and, um, And so I was conscious of the fact that the RGS has a particular kind of fraught relationship with its own kind of colonial past as well. So that was one of my desires to get a book about anti-colonialism published within that series was was one of my aims as well, in terms of kind of bringing some of those debates into the, the home of British geography with all of its kind of particular tensions as a colonial, as a previously heavily colonial subject. And so... There was part of the intention of that chapter was to introduce the ways in which the freedom struggle has been written about and the ways in which kind of the politics of the freedom struggle have been written about um, to people who may not necessarily be kind of, you know, academic historians of India or, um, or have much academic knowledge of India um, because of the way it sits within that series. Um, so there was there was a certainly certainly part of my headspace was thinking, right, I need to kind of have a chapter where I kind of introduce some of those broad arcs of things. And I was conscious of the fact that it needed to be not really much more than a chapter just to give the the actual um, the detail of the later chapters enough space to breathe. Um, and so in true kind of academic style, I was like, okay, I'm going to make three cuts within the chapter. Um, and one of which is kind of you know a discussion of the elite and the subaltern and that that supposed divide within that um another is to do with um violence and non-violence as you say and just I think within that particular discussion trying to kind of um part of that again was a discussion of um the fact that m- the the myth of decolonization as wholly non-violent was something is something that is kind of really well known for a majority of people, but is still incredibly underplayed, particularly within the kind of UK-centric imagination of decolonization. in in public culture more generally. I mean, we I think um, up until the anniversary of partition um, a few years ago, um, it was a, a lot of people still kind of um, think that you know, Richard Attenborough's Gandhi is an accurate representation of what happened within the decolonization of India and trying to kind of tell a more diverse story about that, um, is a part of that. And so I was trying to balance those, those imperatives of trying to provide an overall sense of how people have understood the, the freedom struggle going back to kind of, you know, well-known histories by people like Bipanchandra, um, Uh, And the kind of, you know, really foundational people through to uh, people like Shruti Kapila's um, work on violence and um, and Swadeshi activism and um, challenging some of the kind of political areas of, uh, or challenging some of those understandings of how central violence is to um, the political philosophy of the freedom struggle um, for some of the more kind of extremist leaders at the time. And then the third kind of thing was trying to add a sense of why South India is important within that as well. Um, and so I was conscious of the fact that there is a bit of a balancing act between all of those areas within that um, and um, trying to get a sense of why, in particular, I suppose the, the, the easiest answer f- um, to some extent is that sense of, for me, um, trying to provide that that spatial logic of saying that South India is actually really, really interesting at this time where um, you go back and look at a lot of the kind of classic literatures on um, politics and um, anti-colonialism and they don't really talk about South India. It's kind of written about as, oh, there's a couple of moments of activity. And it's a few things that happen in Madras um, or places like that, but it's all very much little moments compared to some of the larger mass mobilizations that happen elsewhere within India. Um, so yeah, it's it was trying to kind of juggle a lot of those, those things around within that chapter, I suppose, um, and trying to give a sense of, um, again, emphasizing the kind of diversity of that, but also using south india to kind of decenter some of those debates a little as well and to kind of um, encourage a, a slight sense of the the diverse nature of anti colonialism particularly in the in the first couple of decades of the 20th century where like i said though a lot of those categorizations that we now take for granted were much less clear cut and were much more overlapping and much more diverse at that point so yeah um
1: and then in chapter 4 you move from land to sea, I think. Uh, You changed that. And you talk about maritime geographies, charted out by the activities of the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company. Uh, And this is part of, as you say, an Indian Ocean economy where some restitution of Indian cultural and economic values could be hoped for. Um, And, you know, I I must say that my knowledge of the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company was very minimal uh, before I read your chapter. So uh, could you, you know, give us a give us a history of it to start with and then you know what again what you're doing in this chapter
0: yeah sure sure um yeah so the um the Swadeshi steam navigation company is is an attempt really um, as part of the whole Swadeshi movement um to kind of create um, a, a a kind of indigenous um, which is the term that is used a lot of the time by by Swadeshi activists at the time as well—an indigenous kind of form of capitalism that can resist um, British uh, colonial extraction. So um, by this point, you know um, Dada by Nehruji's idea of kind of the colonial drain is really well established by amongst anti-colonial movements. Um, and I mean, all, a lot of the classic studies of Swadeshi um, activism um, have shown how it was both an economic form of resistance but also it established a lot of um the the tropes of um particular ways of kind of conducting anti-colonial behavior um within kind of the later phases of the struggle so it's really seen as yeah that that kind of foundational moment um but is often kind of centered within uh bengal and bengali culture as a result of Um, The fact that it's spurred because of, you know, the the British government uh, or Lord Curzon's attempt to partition Bengal uh, for political um, divide and rule purposes. Right. So. The these ideas, I think one of the things that the chapter shows is these ideas kind of travel around India and in the four in Madras presidency, um, they take the form of this kind of one particular company, the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company which is um, established by um, uh, V.O. Chidambram Pillai, um, who is a, a relatively low-ranking lawyer um, who is able to kind of use some of his kind of um, rhetorical skills. So he's already been involved with a number of kind of Congress um, activities within Madras presidency, uh, but in other kind of all-India Congress activities um, so meeting people, people like uh, Bipin Chandrapal and helping with kind of speaking tours and things like this. Uh, so he's got a kind of certain degree of cultural and economic capital, and he goes around raising money to set up a steam navigation company that he wants to sail um, a number of ships from the South Indian city of um, um so port city, right in the far south of uh, Madras presidency, uh, to Colombo as a way to defeat um, the trade monopoly of what's then one of the largest shipping companies in the world, the British India Steam Navigation Company. And so, I mean, this was something that I I knew nothing about before this research started. This was something I discovered when I was in Pondicherry um, doing the research. And you just think, really, it's, it's an amazing story of optimism to some extent in terms of, you know, you would think that most people would start small and you know you might start your own kind of import export business or you would do something that would involve you uh, producing goods that would replace kind of british made imports as part of the swadeshi strategy and you you wouldn't think of taking on the lar- one of the largest steamship empires in the world in the world at that time by taking on one part of one of its routes and by buying, uh, by trying to get investment from merchants to buy um, a number of ships to, to move across um, the Park Strait. And so you kind of think the ambition of this man is, is unbelievable. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, but it's also really interesting in the way that, um, so already people like um, Sri Aurobindo, who comes into some of the late is one of the focuses of the latest chapters, who's active in Bengal um, and in Calcutta at the time are using this idea to kind of say, well, look, this is where this is how we need to be thinking. We don't just want to focus on um, an Indian national economy. We need to be thinking about how India's um, future decolonized economy. And I'm thinking in terms of, uh, you know, uh, Manu Gaswami's work is really hugely important here in understanding that kind of, that impulse um, towards a development of an Indian um, sense of uh, an all-India economy. But what that does um, is kind of gives a sense of how, again, it challenges this kind of nation-centric framing. So you've got people who are saying, well, it's not enough for us to have an Indian economy. We need to think about how our economy is connected to other places and the main mechanism mechanism of us connecting to those other places is through steamships if you think about kind of the amount of work that's done on um indian seafarers um lascas as kind of a key mechanism of maintaining the, the global colonial economy um it's really interesting to see how this really this one small example so i think um the, the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company had um, two large steamers and two small steamers, um, and um, which were active for a really short period of time, because as soon as the company was established, um, it swiftly kind of fell foul of the colonial authorities, and there's kind of it's not. Um, it's difficult to find in the archive now exactly what those things are. And, you know, the colonial archive will not tell, will not tell us, um, that there was explicit collusion between the colonial government and the British India steam, uh, British India steam navigation company. But I mean, it's fairly clear that there was a lot of dodgy to say the least trade practices taking place that forced, um, the Swadeshi steam navigation company out of business. Um, but you kind of have this interesting thing where, you yeah, Pillai is someone who doesn't really... Um, he's a great kind of political mobilizer. but there's also still that sense that the um, Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company is attempting to create um, a workforce for an independent India. So one of its schemes is to try and get... Um, People trained to operate as officers on board steamships, something that, because of the color bar that's enacted on most um, sailing ships, is something that's not a that that, um, most Indian seafarers would never have the opportunity to do that. So, although there is a kind of a continuing sense by which the SSN Co's um, ships are staffed by predominantly European officers. There is an attempt to overturn some of those kind of labour practices within it as well. So, very kind of emancipatory politics within that, and that eventually leads to um, because of the um, because of the kind of unequal trade practices that the British begin enacting against the co, You see then. Um, Major street protests begin to happen in um, Tuticorin, the port, but also um, Tirunelveli, the um, the main district town. And so it's when those protests spill over into what what the authorities term the Tirunelveli riot, um, where Swadeshi nationalists um, begin to kind of uh, try and take over the town and resist. and uh, try and burn um, a lot of government and British-owned businesses within the town. So that's when the clampdown really starts, and that's where Pillai is arrested um, and sentenced to hard labour. And this causes huge outcry. Um, originally, uh, sorry, he's sentenced originally to banishment, um, which is a kind of a, a fairly standard colonial punishment um, for nationalist leaders at this point who are found guilty of sedition. Um. But because there's a huge outcry led by kind of the middle class press um, in places like the Hindu newspaper, um, but across kind of um, a lot of the um, vernacular press at the time as well, that's eventually rolled back to a number of years of hard labour. Um, and by the time Pillai is released, uh, released slightly early from his sentence as well, but by that point, the Swedish Swadeshi steam navigation company has kind of fallen out of business uh, because it's unable to make a profit because of the, uh, without his leadership, it swiftly kind of all falls apart. So I think it's it's really a fascinating moment where you've kind of got a really ambitious level of challenge to colonial rule, which swiftly meets the full force of the colonizers' um, wrath against it to some extent. Um but again, it, by thinking about it as the way that it challenges the kind of um, what I call the kind of terror centric, the land centric notion of um, the story of um, anti-colonial nationalisms generally, um, it tells us that we need to think beyond just national boundaries. And we need to think there and understand how people like Pillai were thinking transnationally. Yeah even in the context of a very kind of nationalist activity in terms of building up some of those, um, those kind of national industries as they wanted to at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, I, so my next question takes up your last three chapters, which is a lot, but I think it makes sense Mm -hmm. to ask you uh, this question as a whole. So in the last three chapters, you describe Pondicherry as a hub of, radical nationalist, anti-colonial thought, and particularly in, in the works and thought of Sri Aurobindo, who we have already talked about, and Empithi Acharya. Uh, could you give us a sense of the centrality of Pondicherry in this geography of anti-colonial thought and, you know, this constellation of intellectuals represented by Aurobindo and Acharya for sure, but, you know, others as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I think It's a kind of huge question to some extent, but it's a really kind of vital one to why I thought, why as I was doing that research back in, you know, starting off in 2013, it became clear that you that you couldn't just tell a story this kind of large in some sm- certain like, you know, 8,000, 10,000 word academic papers. It needed something more within that. And I guess um, for me, there's, there's kind of two things. One is, you know, Pondicherry is... Is this dual-edged space where it's a space of kind of great potential freedom in terms of it allows people um, to move into a form of exile there. So you would move from kind of you know British India into French India, and you could carry on political activities. And really, up until you know the the World War One um, kind of alliance solidifying between Britain and France. The, the French authorities were relatively tolerant of allowing um, people to, to do what they wanted within those areas. Uh, but yeah, the, so there's, there's that sense of it's a place of great freedom, but it's equally um, incredibly oppressive space. And I guess for me, and this is, this is indicative of my own kind of biases in terms of the people I'm most, most fascinated by um, the, the individual who, who, ties the thread across all four of those chapters and is the subject of the, um, the second one is is Supramanya Bharati. And this um, Tamil nationalist who kind of reinvents the Tamil language for modernity and is a great kind of national poet and uh, symbol of kind of Tamil cultural identity. But he's kind of writing about the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company in his newspaper, The India, um, and creating the first cartoons um, in Indian um, in the Indian vernacular press at the time, one of which is explicitly about the uh, Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company as this kind of unifying moment. And it's when Bharati yeah, essentially falls foul of the authorities um, through the kind of incendiary writing in the India, but also in um, other publications like the Swadhesha Mitran, um, that him and Acharya move to Pondicherry to kind of escape from rule. And Acharya moves on. Um, I'll say a little bit about him in a second. Um, But Bharati remains in Pondicherry for kind of, you know, 10 years of his life where gradually as the British kind of tighten the screw on what is allowed in Pondicherry, including things like, you know, sending um, police from Madras presidency into French territory just to observe people without kind of, Um, any kind of real recourse to asking the French for permission within that, really. They're happy to, because the um, French colonial power in India is so marginal that they can basically get away with sending huge swarms of police there. And so there's this really interesting, and one of the things that I kind of keep meaning to revisit, um, there's a really interesting kind of sense of the very place-based geographies of Pondicherry at this time as, as a city that was prior to the early 1800s was kind of the center of French colonial ambition within India, but swiftly became relegated to this kind of very minor enclave together with the other kind of French Indian territories. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, that sense of how Pondicherry is a very kind of distinct space that allowed people a certain degree of freedom, at least at times, but also really, really like clamped down on these individuals' lives as well. And like Bharati's story of his life within Pondicherry really is a tragedy, to some extent, in terms of how his ability to live and his family's ability to live is really destroyed by the British authorities as they remove any way of him gaining an income, as they restrict his ability to publish, even kind of his non-nationalist poems are kind of swiftly kind of clamped down on. Um, and so there's this sense by which Pondicherry is a, is a kind of fascinating space. And um, there's a, there's a book that's just come out uh, by Jessica Namakal, which looks at kind of Pondicherry and it's kind of and the the decolonization of French India in the, in a kind of longer time span, which kind of is, is uh, fascinating reading that's, that's just come out. Um, and so you have this moment then, I suppose for the, so Bharati arrives with Acharya and it's, it's swiftly joined by this kind of constellation of people who are doing a number of different things. So you end up with, um, revolutionary, um, activists who've been active in Europe, returning to Pondicherry and conducting revolver training in some of the large houses there and some of the estates, um, to go on and conduct a political assassination, one of the only kind of political assassinations in South India um, as part of the freedom struggle, where um, one of the uh, British officials, um, a, uh, one of the district collectors, um, Ash, is assassinated seemingly because he was involved in the Tinnevelly disturbances and... Um, earlier on um, that were related to the Swadeshi Steam Navigation Company. But one of the central figures, at least in in terms of kind of Pondicherry today, is this figure of Sri Aurobindo, um, who is kind of well-known as a kind of spiritualist leader. Um, The Aurobindo ashram is one of the major landowners within Pondicherry town today, particularly within the heritage quarter. Um. And a lot of the kind of rationale within this is, is again, troubling that distinction. So the uh, Aurobindo's life story is often characterized as he was political and he was involved in the Swadeshi movement um, through a kind of series of um, radical and um, political and violent campaigns in West Bengal, Uh, but then he escapes into exile. Um, and be- and having become increasingly spiritual during that first political phase of his life, it's he moves to Pondicherry and becomes um, a, a, a an exclusively spiritual figure at that point. And one of the things I'm, tr- I'm trying to challenge within the chapter specifically on Aurobindo is this kind of divide between kind of politics and spirituality as kind of um, as distinct categories, and to begin thinking about the way that. Um, uh, Aurobindo, arriving in Pondicherry, moved away from a certain form of politics and actually created a different form of politics through his spiritual activity. Um, And to begin kind of challenging some of those kind of notions of what a, uh, or to kind of decolonize our notions of what politics can be or what counts as actual politics. Um, And so, yeah, it's that that kind of sense of... um, how Aurobindo becomes this figure who is called upon um, as in a number of ways today in kind of contemporary India as well, and and occasionally is kind of hinted at as becoming the target for appropriation by things like the BJP and its kind of uh, politics within some of those areas as well. But it's never quite been appropriated in 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 many ways. So beginning to understand how how he. How it wasn't just a move into kind of um, exile and a move into spiritual retreat that Aurobindo was involved in, but we need to kind of unsettle that kind of clear schism in his life and to begin thinking about his life in a number of kind of different trajectories. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting how with Acharya as well, um, and the person who I, who I should definitely kind of mention here is uh, Ole Lawson, um, who's at the moment in the final stages, I think, of writing a biography of Acharya, which will be a fascinating book to read, where you kind of have this person who starts off publishing a Tamil language newspaper with Subramany Bharati, arrives in Pondicherry and finds it too, too stultifying for his political activity. So he ends up travelling to Europe and becoming a part of the kind of really... Diverse and vibrant um, intellectual and anti-colonial networks um, that are running throughout Europe at that point, and so he ends up. His life story is kind of like you know a who's who and a and a traveling from place to place. That any any center within the within the next kind of thirty years from nineteen ten to nineteen thirty, anywhere that there is anti-colonial activity, Acharya seems to pop up. whether that's kind of resisting, kind of, uh, or siding with the Germans to try and destabilize British colonial territories in World War One, through to meeting Lenin and Kropotkin, uh, to being being associated with M.N. Roy um, and Varadranath Chattopadhyay, um, and so you kind of have this character who is, I think, until like Ola started doing a huge amount of work on him. Um, it was relatively little known outside of kind of you know people who were interested in uh tamil history um and the, the smaller numbers of people who were interested in kind of you know some of those revolutionary networks but he was kind of very much seen as um as not the same as you know m n roy or um chato or some of the other kind of standard bearers of of these movements Whereas in fact I think um Ola's work is going to be really important in establishing how um acharya moves through some of these revolutionary circles, but eventually kind of ends up um adopting an explicitly anarchist approach. Um and so continuing the work of, of people like Maya Ramnath and her work establishing kind of, you know, anarchist currents within um the Indian freedom struggle and telling a more Politically diverse history of, um, of the freedom struggle, um, and to to kind of challenge some of those um, those taken for granted kind of categorizations that we often apply to them, and so I guess yeah to, to come back to the original <laughs> the original point of your question I suppose I'm I'm I'm, I'm rabbiting on here. Uh, it, it is amazing that this kind of you know, Pondicherry as this as the city is incredibly small and just that kind of the ability of these kind of four individuals to have such kind of diverse trajectories through that, some of which had incredibly kind of local place-based resonances like Bharati's reinvigoration of kind of popular Tamil through to um, Acharya's Help, uh, work establishing the Communist Party of India um, and all of these kind of different trajectories that move through Pondicherry as a space um, really kind of just fascinated me um, as soon as I started kind of tracing out some of those kind of connections and networks, really.
1: Thank you. Thank you for... Uh, uh, it was such so good to know. Um, and, you know, this is... that That's one of the reasons why I took all of these um, chapters together to give our listeners a sense of the sheer breadth of the work that your chapters are doing here um, lastly and uh, you know I I can't let you go without asking you about what you're working on right now and what your current and next projects are so what is your next book going to be let me ask right.
0: yeah yeah <laughs> it's a it's an interesting question so I think um, I've kind of Well, there's three things that I kind of do at the moment. One of the things is, as you kindly mentioned in your kind of introduction, I I do quite a few um, walks within Liverpool as kind of heritage walks um, where we talk about um, obviously Liverpool is a city kind of deeply embedded within transatlantic slavery, but um, we do kind of lots of kind of uh, public education walks and trying to think about how um the walks that I tend to do so there's a there's a really great local historian called Lawrence Westgaff who um, runs a number of walks related to kind of Liverpool's slavery history and kind of doing the the making visible of what are seemingly invisible um, traces within the city um whereas I I, I together with um, a group of kind of fellow uh, fellow people at um Writing on the wall, conduct walks related to kind of more recent colonial history, and the way that kind of you know Liverpool's connections to colonialism didn't just end when international slavery was um, kind of made illegal in the British Empire in the eighteen thirties. Um, so that's kind of the, some of the ongoing more praxis-based work that I do um, locally. There's there's two things that kind of are more continuations of of these pro, of the work on Pondicherry and one of which is um, the work that um, is still ongoing to some extent um, with the Hooghly River of Cultures project which um, is conducting kind of similar work but with a group of community volunteers in Hooghly in West Bengal where you have a similar series of um, formerly colonial enclaves running up the, the west coast of the Hooghly River, north of Calcutta. So um, one of which was a French territory called Chandanago, um which was where Aurobindo escaped to Pondicherry from. Um, but Chandanagar, if anything, had a kind of more tumultuous anti-colonial history um, because it was so much more proximate to Calcutta. Um, and so the Hooghly River of Cultures project is partially about kind of preservation of some of the um, more long-lasting heritage of um, the settlements along um, the banks of the Hooghly, so um, Bandel, Serampo, Chandanaga. um And each of those kind of uh, belonged to a different kind of um, colonial um, authority at different times. So it was um, Portuguese, French, Dutch territories um, along mm-hmm. those, which all gradually became ab- absorbed into um, the Republic of India at various times. um and so what um, I've been talking about um, off and on um, is trying to think about what what does um, an anti-colonial version of heritage look like? So um, a lot of the volunteers who were working uh, for the Hooghly River of Cultures project and have set up um, a branch of INTAC um, for the Hooghly district um, are kind of, doing walking tours and conducting kind of activities to encourage people's awareness of, um, some of the huge bari's and some of the huge mansions that still exist there and kind of preserving some of that cultural heritage, um, to stop kind of demolitions of those things taking place, um, as, um, kind of property development occurs within those areas. But the, the, so there's, there's that whole branch of the project. The bit that I've been most involved with is trying to think about the ways in which some of these stories of anti-colonial radicals and the the people who ended up holed up in Chandanago um, were doing similar things to Pondicherry, but could that be something that people would find meaningful as a way of um, conducting you know, heritage tours as a result of that and a way of generating employment as a result of that? so i guess there's there's that sense by which freedom fighters and the freedom struggle are commemorated in in very particular ways within india as a whole and ordinarily you wouldn't necessarily think of people doing walking tours in relation to that um so maybe there's something there to talk about but again it's it's one of those ongoing things um to 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 carry on developing um and so the last thing is is trying to continue thinking about um, some of these more Tamil, South Indian-based political networks um, and thinking about how the individuals I explore within this book fit into that longer trajectory of um, of particularly Tamil politics. Um, so I think most people, think, when they think of Tamil politics, they think of um, the Justice Party, um the anti Brahmin movements of the 20s, 30s, leading towards the kind of Dravidian politics of the DMK and the AIA DMK in the 50s, 60s, and the kind of anti Hindi agitations and things like that. And so, the the kind of the project I've done the least work on at the moment is trying to see how, if there are any kind of connections between people like Bharati through into those movements as well, and trying to kind of stitch together some of that. Um, that kind of intellectual lineage from um, anti-colonialism through to um, the particular kind of Tamilian um, forms of politics that we see emerging in the 20th century.
1: Yeah. This is uh, so exciting, Andy, and I'm, I'm, you know, so thrilled and in anticipating all of the work that you're doing, especially, uh, as I've already told you, uh, you know, Sri Rampur, one of the towns in your Hooghly River project is my hometown. So I'm really excited uh, about that project in particular, and I'm going to look forward to um, its completion. Uh, thank you so much uh, for talking to us about this, about your book, and, uh, you know, congratulations on its publication.
0: Uh, yeah, Thanks so much, Sharanak. It's, it's great to speak to you, and uh, thanks for your time um, in kind of preparing everything for this and uh, putting the questions together and putting together such thoughtful questions about uh, about the book. I really do appreciate your time and, uh, and efforts there.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thank you. And thank you, our listeners, and hope you have a great day.